Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. In Episode 7 on the book of Jeremiah, the theme is truth. The passage we're going to examine today is significant for the doctrine of biblical inspiration, but that's not even the main subject. Jeremiah 34. Let me go ahead and say that right up front so we can, because I will forget to come back to that and mention that until after we get started. And then everybody will look around and say, Where are we? Uh, so it's Jeremiah 34 through 39 is what we're going to be looking at and covering today. Now I compared those early chapters of Jeremiah, the first half of Jeremiah, chapters 1 through 25, thereabouts, to in a, if a contemporary uh, preacher and Christian artist were to produce music CDs that had some spoken word on it that you know and but just produce some albums uh, like that and to see how the, how those came about and then uh, some uh, things that were brought out of his after he was gone but brought out by those who still had his collection of stuff that put together this is these are things, this is stuff that you haven't heard from Jeremiah before. This passage reminds me, as I was going through this and, I, and looking at it, it reminded me a lot of if a movie had been made about Jeremiah, how would the story be put together if it was made by one of those directors who, is, who doesn't merely want to tell the story, he wants to tell you what the story means in the process of telling the story. And so he will use a lot of different... Uh, techniques there are a lot of filmmaking techniques and one of the most difficult and yet used techniques and sometimes it's used when it's used when it's used poorly it, it, it just makes for a confusing movie and that's the flashback the flashback technique and when it's used poorly it just makes for confusion you know it just mixes up the plot but there are sometimes when the story there's there's something in the story that's more important than the plot, and when that's the case, the flashback is very very useful technique in filmmaking or in storytelling and in, in the writing of a novel or of a short story or something. The use of the flashback is a very useful technique, particularly when a, when the linear plot. If you follow the linear plot, you may miss the point of the story that's being told. That's the way this section of Jeremiah is put together. It's put together. The, there's a general overall theme. Uh, it, there's a general overall storyline. This is primarily about the ministry of Jeremiah that the public didn't see. That was behind the scenes in the last days of Jerusalem. That's the main storyline. That's the main pop plot line. What's going on behind the scenes? What's going on in the discussions that Jeremiah had with the king, primarily? Behind the scenes that the public never heard, the public never saw. In the last days of Jerusalem. But it's not told in a linear fashion. 
it's told through the use of episodes and flashbacks. So it's not strictly chronological. This is the section of time that it's about, and that's the last stage of Jerusalem. But there's a section in here that doesn't even occur during the last days of Jerusalem. But it's a flashback that gives meaning to the whole thing, and there's a purpose for the, uh, for the final editor of this book of Jeremiah, who probably was Baruch, who plays, by the way, a pivotal role in this for the first time. It's not the first time he's mentioned. It's actually the second time that he's mentioned by name in this book. But it's the first time that he actually plays a role in the plot. He actually is a he's a he's a he's not a major figure, but he is a significant supporting player in this in this segment. So I, I think of this as it's kind of like a movie. And so we have the first act of the movie, the first scene, chapter thirty four. There's a point to how this is all told also, because it looks very indirect. Why didn't you just get to it? There's a reason. See if you can spot it. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the kingdoms under, uh, of the earth under his dominion, and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all of its cities. Now notice how that's set up. <laughs> Who's against Jerusalem? God and everybody. Okay? That... That expression, what God and everyone, you know. In this case, it's the writer of Jeremiah, the, the writer of these words, the editor of Jeremiah, said, this is literally true. It's God and everybody against Jerusalem right now. And who's king? Zedekiah. The last from the line of David. The last of the kings of Judah. Go speak to Zedekiah. The, uh, verse 2. Thus says the Lord. Okay, now notice it starts out. This is the word that came, came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him. Notice how that. It's telling us what the word of the Lord is to Jeremiah. And the word of the Lord is to Jeremiah. Go and speak to Zedekiah. And say to him, thus says the Lord. See how many compounds there are here? What do you think that's emphasizing? Jeremiah didn't make this stuff up. The false prophets were the ones who made this stuff up. The false prophets decided, what well, this is a good message, and this is the one I'm going to bring. This is what people need to hear. That's what false prophets made up. That, I mean, that, this is false prophets at the best of times. This is the, the best motivated false prophets. They're coming up with things that they believe the people need to hear. That's not the prophet of God. The prophet of God doesn't come up with things that people need to hear. He doesn't come up with anything. God tells him, this is what you're to say, and this is who you're to tell. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye, and speak with him face to face. And literally, the Hebrew is, you shall speak to him mouth to mouth. In other words, you are going to have a personal one-on-one -on -one interview with Nebuchadnezzar. He himself is going to come and interview you, interrogate you, challenge you, whatever. 
mock you, whatever it is. I mean, you are going to stand face to face before the man that you fear most in the world. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you. You shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace. <clears throat> Comparatively. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so people shall burn spices for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. Notice the contrast between Zedekiah's fate and Jehoiakim's fate. Jehoiakim... His, his death would not be peaceful. Now, as it turns out, Jehoiakim was not killed, but his death actually ended. He did not rest in peace. They buried him in the tombs, but according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, they, when they got there, they took him and they threw him out to the, to the garbage dump. Nobody would mourn Jehoiakim. He said, they're actually going to have a memorial service for you, Zedekiah. And they will lament, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. Now, all of that is just the message that God gave. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem when the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem, against all the cities that, of Judah that were left, Lachish and Azekah, for these were the only fortified cities that remained. Now notice this. Look at where the emphasis is on all of this. The emphasis is not on Jeremiah going and speaking the word to Zedekiah, is it? That's told basically as a significant detail at the end of the message. Jeremiah obeyed the word that God gave him. The emphasis is not on the delivering of the message. The emphasis is on the word that was given. Notice that. There is something going on that sets the theme for this whole section. And that is how God speaks through, speaks to and through his prophets. We are going to see in this, in this passage some valuable insight that relates to the doctrine of inspiration and to the doctrine of how the scripture was written. How the, how the prophets put down what God told them to put down. How the, how the Bible was written. How we got this word from God. How this is the word of God even though it was a word that came through and in the words of men. The valuable insights into all of this. And so the Word of God, the theme of the Word of God is paramount here. But it's not the only one. It may not even be the main one. So keep watching. Then the Word of the Lord. And notice everything. It's a hopeless situation. Jerusalem is surrounded. Nobody can go in or out. The, the city of Lachish is still standing. The fortress city of Azekah is still standing. There has been, there was found, archaeologists have found a message from Jerusalem at this time. And it was a message that was sent between the signal 
the messenger, they, they had a pretty uh, sophisticated system of sending messages between the forts and a system of using signal fires between the forts. And this message, this written message that, was, that came through was a message sent to the, uh, to the commander of the, uh, of the garrison at Lakish. And it was a message that's saying, we're still, get, we're still seeing your fires. We can't see anything from Azakai anymore. Fascinating little historical detail that fits right into this passage. This is a very dramatic. I mean, think of Lord of the Rings with the orcs surrounding the walls of the city. I mean, that, this is basically what you've got. And as a matter of fact, when J.R.R. Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings, he modeled his, uh, these battle scenes and these siege scenes after these scenes that are in the Bible. So verse 8, the word, of, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Notice again, though, here's the emphasis on the word of the Lord. Next scene. Change of scene. And this is one of those. This is our first flashback. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them. That everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed, all the officials, all the people who had entered into the covenant, that everyone would free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around, took back male and female slaves they had set free, brought them into subjection as slaves. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying at the end of seven years, you must set free the fellow Hebrew that's been sold to you and served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. Recent, you recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. You made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you've not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which is withdrawn from you. Behold, I will command declares the Lord, and I will bring them back to this city and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Now what's going on here? First of all, this is during that time. If you remember back 2 Kings, the siege of Jerusalem began and then Nebuchadnezzar withdrew his forces. Why? Because the Pharaoh of Egypt was making a demonstration on his flank. And so he needed to go and deal with that distraction. 
Now, we really don't know whether, Pharaoh, whether Nebuchadnezzar actually engaged Pharaoh in battle and defeated him, whether he drove him back physically, or whether the Pharaoh was just faking and didn't, never did follow through on the attack that he had threatened. But it looked like that here were the forces arrayed against Jerusalem, and then they prayed uh, the word of the Lord, and the prophet said, you know, gave a message. This is the end, and but then they withdrew, and the false. It looked like the false prophets were right. It looked like the false prophets were right, who said, "God's going to deliver the city once again." Look, look at what's happened. And so there was a respite from the siege. And now you could come and go from Jerusalem again. What happened? When the Babylonians were around the city, they declared a fast time. They got serious about God for a little while. And they decided to pray. And then some, and then apparently with the... Uh, through the preaching of Jeremiah and perhaps some other true prophets, they, did, they looked at it and said, what do we need to do? I said, well, one of the main things, one of the things, this is a covenant that you've never, part of the covenant you've never kept, and that's the, the seven-year sabbatical. Release those. Now, servitude was indentured. Servitude was about debt primarily. And the law was, if somebody owes you, if somebody owes you money, you can make them work it off. But after six years, you have to give them the seventh year as a Sabbath, and then after the seventh year, they're free. During that seventh year, during that sabbatical year, they can make a decision whether they want to stay with you and serve you and be your employee. But it's their choice. They all decided. They made a covenant. They took, they got together, they made a solemn covenant in the temple of God. They had a covenant ceremony and that involved cutting a calf and walking between the pieces. Cutting it in half and walking everybody who is participating in the covenant, walking between the pieces. What you're doing is you're invoking a curse on yourself when you do that. God stands witness between us that if I violate this covenant, the same thing is going to happen to me that happened to this calf. It's a covenant ceremony that goes back to the earliest days of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. It's a ceremony that God made with Abraham when he made his covenant with Abraham. And God and Abraham both, the light of God and Abraham both walk between the pieces of the animal. So this is a solemn thing. God takes covenants like this pretty seriously. Now, they've been disobeying this commandment all of their, you know, their entire history. But today, they decided to make a covenant with the Lord Jehovah God to follow through this time, for the first time in their history, on this commandment. And they did that. And they set them free. And you know what? Of all the things, all the prophecies of all the destruction and everything else, you see these words? You did what was right in my sight. It's kind of like God said, you did what was right. You did something right. I like that. I'm pleased with that. God is ready to show mercy even after all of the pronouncements of judgment that he has made. God is ready to show them mercy because they obeyed one commandment. 
God is ready to overlook their idolatries, their profane lifestyles, their immoralities. He is over, he's willing to set aside the curse that Manasseh has brought upon the city through the shedding of innocent blood. He's willing to set all of that aside because they made a covenant and kept the commandment of the sabbatical year. And they showed justice for the first time in their history. They showed justice to their neighbors. And then the, then the, then the Babylonians left. And the people of Jerusalem reneged on their covenant. And forced the slaves that they had set free to come back into servitude for them. Shouldn't have done that. <laughs> they really, really shouldn't have done that. Because the God who is getting ready to extend them mercy in spite of everything else. Because they obeyed one commandment. said, not only have you gone back and broken this commandment again, but you know what you've done? You have taken my name in vain. Nobody told, you could have just gone ahead and kept the commandment and set them free, but you didn't just set them free, you made a holy covenant. You didn't have to do that. And you have profaned my name, you have invoked my name, you have invoked my curse. You shouldn't have done that. Folks, we live in an age that profanes the name of God with every breath. And to profane the name of God is not simply to use the word God lightly. To profane the name of God is to make commitments before Him and before the world that we are never ever going to keep not because not because we're not perfect and nobody's perfect but because we really have no intention of keeping and it is a serious thing the Lord it says in the commandment the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain you realize that's the only commandment that that's said of I will command them and they will come back and I will give this city into the army of the king of Babylon that was withdrawn. I will command them, bring them back to this city. They will fight against it. They will take it and burn it without, with fire and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Then we have another scene change and this is the second flashback. This one. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. So now we've got a flashback going back to Jehoiakim. Maybe five, ten years before the end of Jerusalem. Go to the house of the Rechabites. Speak with them. Bring them to the house of the Lord into the chambers. Offer them wine to drink. Now the Rechabites don't usually live in, they're, they're not inhabitants of Jerusalem. They're not dwellers of Jerusalem. 
So why are they here? They're living, they're staying in a place. They're basically, they, they've come in, they've got a house, they're, they're, they've got a lease going. They're nomads, though. So why are they in Jerusalem? Well, we'll have the explanation in the, before the passage. Are they so, Israelites or are they different? They're actually Kenites. They're not Israelites. They're Kenites. They are a relative group. Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. They are descendants of Abraham, but they're not descendants of Jacob. They're not descendants of Israel. And they're nomadic people who live, who have lived a life of, of wandering herdsmen through the land of Israel and Judah. But they're here in Jerusalem. I'll go ahead and short-circuit this to you because he'll, he'll tell us at the end of the chapter, uh, this passage anyway. We're here because basically they're there as refugees. The Babylonians are inhabiting the land. They've, they've come just... For safety, hopefully temporarily, as far as they're concerned, they really don't want to live in Jerusalem. So, I took Jazaniah, son of Jeremiah, son of Habazaniah, and his brothers, and all the house, uh, son, the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them to the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, to the temple, to the chamber of the son of Hanan, son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, above the chamber of Maasiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the threshold. Look at the detail there. And notice the first person. This is Jeremiah's own account. And then I set before the Rechabites pit, pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. Now, here's the prophet of the Lord, the true prophet of the Lord. Everybody knows who is the true prophet of the Lord. And they've come to the temple, and they've come to the chamber of somebody who is actually one of the good guys in the temple. They've come into his room, and they're all gathered there. This, the, all of the sons of this clan, they've gathered there, they've been offered there, brought to the house of the Lord. This is very deliberate. Everything is deliberate about this setting. And Jeremiah has come, and then he ceremoniously brings them out, big pitchers or bowls of wine and puts cups in front of them. says, drink up. This is for you. Drink up. They answered. Uh, no. No, thank you. We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, You shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons, forever. You shall not build a house. You shall not sow seed. You shall not plant or have a vineyard. You shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. Notice the resemblance of that to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God gives you. We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and all that he commanded us to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, our daughters, not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we've lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. When Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, come, let's go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians. So we're living in Jerusalem. This is temp. So, here's the deal. First of all, let me ask you something. How many of you know and can name a direct ancestor of yours from the from 1776 I can 
but not because it's been passed down to me, but because I've gone and studied it, looked it up, and finally found it. And I can tell you some of the story, but I can't give you any of that information as though it come directly to me, because it hasn't. These men, these people, these Rechabites, were obeying a commandment that was given to them by their ancestor who lived 250 years before. You remember him from our study of 2 Kings. Jonadab, ben Rechab, was brought in by Jehu when Jehu had overthrown the house of Ahab and while he was staging his continued bloody purge of the house of Ahab from Israel. He needed somebody who would give this an air of legitimacy. And he brought in Jehonadab. Why? Because Jehonadab was known even in his time as a man of conviction. And he's called Jehonadab in Kings. He's, his name is shortened a little bit in Jeremiah to Jonadab. Same name, same person. And Jehu had Jonadab right next to him when he killed some of those family members of Ahab. Jonadab did not disapprove, but there were other things that Jonadab could not approve of. One of them was the drunken behavior of Jehu and his officers. Another one of them was the general immorality that was, that was practiced by those who were... And what he looked at it and said, all of this come, this is what comes from living in the city. So I don't want my family to be under this influence and here's how we're going to keep from it. Nobody's going to drink wine. Why? Drinking wine, you, you tend to want to start planting vineyards. You start planting vineyards, you start putting down roots, you start putting down roots, you start associating with these things and all these things. It's collateral things. That, so we're just, in my family, from this point forward forever, we are not going to drink wine we are going to be total abstainers. Extremely unusual in that day. You only did that if you were keeping a vow. Jonadab put his whole family under that vow. Forever. So this was transmitted from one generation to another. So you're not going to build houses. You're, you're going to live as nomads. We've done that forever. The only reason we're doing this right now is because this is an extreme situation. We never even had this with the Assyrians coming through. Then, Very much. I mean, not, not and what? In a, in a culture. Now, now look at what what's that? So, so that's all of this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. It's not until now, not until after this, and all of this is put forward that the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. Even Jeremiah does not understand this. Say, God, why are you making me tempt the Rechabites? I know he, he had to have been asking that question. Why is the Lord making me tempt the Rechabites? But he knew that this was from the Lord. He said, okay, okay, this may be God wanting them. It's time for them to break their tradition. I don't know. I don't know what God said. It's not until all of this happens that the word of God comes to Jeremiah. And the word of the, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction and listen to my words, declares the Lord. The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept and they drink none to this day for they obey their father's command. I've spoken to you persistently, but you've not listened to me. 
They had an ancestor give them a command that put them completely at odds with the rest of the culture around them for the next 250 years. And they're still obeying that command. To a man, they are obeying that command. Without any reminders, without anybody to send prophets to them. I've been sending you prophets all along. I've reminded you of my law, my covenant. I've been, and you still won't listen to me. I've sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them, persistently saying, turn every one of you from his evil way. Amend your deeds. Don't go after other gods to serve them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your father. You didn't incline your ear. Listen to me. The sons of Jonadab and the son of Rechab have kept the command of, that their father gave them. But this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I'm bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I pronounced against them because I've spoken to them and they've not listened. I've called to them and they have not answered. Notice this. This is not God who just decided one time you're out. God speaks of how I have continually pleaded with this people and spoken to them and they won't answer me. Now, notice how this is put. We usually look at it the other way around, don't we? I've spoken to God repeatedly and He won't answer me. Have you ever thought it from his point of view? But to the house of Rechabites, Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord, the, the Lord of hosts. Typical phrase from Jeremiah. Jeremiah likes to call him the Lord of hosts. Because here are all these armies arrayed against Judah. But they're nothing compared to the hosts of the Lord. If the Lord wanted to, the Lord could, could drive them out with one angel. That's all it took for the Assyrians. The Lord could finish them with one angel, and the Lord has hosts. Um, this, is not a, this is not a big thing for the Lord to deal with. They are here at the Lord's bidding, at the Lord's command. The Lord owns these hosts of the enemy. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done all that he commanded you. Notice what he says. God does not... What he's not commending is the commandment itself. He's not saying that they are a righteous people because they didn't drink. He's saying they are righteous because they've been obedient to what their father commanded. They've kept a conviction. They took hold of a conviction and they've kept it because it was a conviction. It was a conviction of a godly man of conviction. And said, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall never lack a man. And this is a special phrase, to stand before me. That phrase is used many times throughout the scripture in various ways, but basically what it means is to serve me. There's going to be somebody... From his line, he's going to have a descent. He shall never lack a man who will be my descent. Somewhere in this world today, there is a descendant of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, who believes in the Lord and who's serving him, who's a servant of God. I believe that. Can't document it, can't prove it. We'll find out one day, won't we? Chapter 36, change of scene. Another flashback. 
back to the days of Jehoiakim. Fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. This, by the way, the fourth year of Josiah, this was the year also that Nebuchadnezzar ascended to power in Babylon. The word, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll, write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, against all the nations from the day that I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words that the Lord had spoken to him. All the words of the Lord that he had spoken to. Now, the thing is, there are a lot of names that are given here. And I'm going to kind of skim over those. Every one of these, all but one of these people have some significance elsewhere in the scripture. Or are connected to people who have significance, except one. That comes in a later episode. But all of these things provide evidence that not, every, not all of the high officials, of the highly placed officials in the kingdom were against Jeremiah. There, he had some allies in the court, but obviously they were, we are going to find that they were definitely the minority voice. And we're going to see, we're going to trace back. All of this goes back. We're, showing, we're seeing the doom of Jerusalem. Why is Jerusalem so doomed? Look at all of the times, all of the chances that they had passed up. Truth is, If anything cinched it, this did before Zedekiah even showed up. Zedekiah had no hope. The best, he, the best Zedekiah was put, the best thing that was put into his hands is, well, we'll find out a little bit later if we've, got a little, if we've got enough time. If not, I'll just give you the short story. I'm going to give you the short story on this one, even though this is one of the best of the stories. This is crucial. This is a, he has Baruch come. Baruch, by the way, is a pretty highly placed person his, in his profession. He is a highly placed professional man and his profession is that of a scribe. He writes down what important people have to say. Jeremiah says, I've got something from the Lord to say. Would you write it down? Okay. God had commanded Jeremiah to take all of these songs and all of these messages and sermons that he had preached and sung before and he says, I want you to write them down. So Jeremiah takes everything that the Lord had given him and Jeremiah hadn't lost anything that the Lord had given him. But he had never written it down up to this point. Everything was up here. So God decides my people are so forgetful. They hear things and it goes in one ear and out the other. It doesn't even rattle around. So maybe if they read it, Maybe if it's on paper, maybe if it comes down in a concrete form, maybe they'll pay attention to it. So God commissions Jeremiah to commission Baruch to be his scribe, to write down everything that he had. And what probably was written down was what we've got in chapters 1 through 20. Those first couple of albums. And Jeremiah takes it. And, this, and then Baruch takes it, and it probably takes a little time to read, but it, and so it, several months pass. And then there's a fast time. It comes, it's, it's somewhere in December of this year. It's a fast time. 
Now, fasts were not scheduled. Fasts were, were things that, you know, I mean, they, they weren't routine. They weren't regular. They didn't come around every year. Fasts were scheduled during times of emergency. Wait until everybody senses that there's emergency. They'll declare a fast. They'll have a solemn assembly. They'll get together. This is when you read it. It wasn't until December that they had an opportunity. And Baruch went out to the temple. And he stood and he read the scroll. And some of the officials of the court were standing there and they heard it, of the court and the temple. And they brought in, and so they, they heard about it, and so they brought in Baruch. They had kind of a committee meeting. But here's how they treated Baruch. They came and said, please sit down. I understand you, you wrote down what Jeremiah the prophet had you write down. Yes, yes, sir, we, I did. Would you read that to us, please? They're very deferential toward him. It gives you a sense of their attitude toward Jeremiah, toward what they heard. And Jeremiah, he read the prophecies of Jeremiah. And it says, and the Hebrew is very, very, the Hebrew is even more vivid than the English. They trembled each one before another. In other words, the words of Jeremiah struck deep conviction into their hearts and souls. And they heard the word, the message of judgment. And the words of weeping and the words of tears and the anguish of God coming out of the anguish of Jeremiah. And they feared God. And they they trembled either without embarrassment or without control before one another. You know, men like to keep their cool when they're in the presence of God, right? Men, Men, we like to keep our cool in front of our peers. In this case, nobody was cool. And they said, we've got to take this to the king. The king's got to hear this. The king's not going to like this. Yeah, I know. Tell you what, Baruch, you and Jeremiah, you might going to want to go find a safe house. <laughs> Don't come out till we tell you. They went, they took the word to the king. Say, I should bring it. I want to hear this. And it is in the wintertime in Jerusalem. It's cold, damp. The king is sitting on, in the lower level of the palace and he's got his brazier there burned with, coal, with charcoal burning, you know, charcoal fire going, keeping warmth. He says, okay, read to me this word from Jeremiah. Read to me this scroll. So they take it, begin reading the scroll. And the king takes a scribe's knife. And after they've read a couple of columns coming down from the scroll, unrolling the scroll, he takes it and he trims it off and takes it and puts it in the fire. And the men who brought him this, they're horrified. They said, don't do that. Don't, don't. don't. And none of, none of his servants, I mean, they look at it and they laugh and everybody's having a good time. And they, they, hear, they hear more words from the scroll of Jeremiah. And he takes, the king takes that pen knife and he slices off parts of it and he pitches it in the fire to do that with the whole scroll until the whole scroll is read aloud to the king and the king personally takes it and puts it in the fire. That's what we think about the word of God from Jeremiah. As God was not mocked by the covenant, be not deceived, God is not mocked. As God is not mocked by the violation of the covenant that they had made to free the slaves, So also God is not mocked by a king who thinks that he is bigger than the word of God.
Kings keep finding this out throughout history. comes, said to Jeremiah, says, write it again, Jeremiah. <laughs> Just like he told Moses, you know those tablets you broke? That didn't end anything. Write them again. This time you can cut your own stones. Yeah, they added a little bit more. So we probably put chapters 21 through 25 in there also. So, yeah. You don't like what you hear? Here's a little more for you. Yes, sir. <laughs> you need some fuel? Here's a little more fuel for your fire. Concerning the king of Judah, you shall say, this is verse 29. You have burned the scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cut up and will cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day, and the frost by night it shall be cast out. His dead body shall be cast out. It says in Kings that he was buried with his fathers. Jeremiah says his dead body. This does not contradict what's in Kings. It says, his dead body shall be cast out. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster I pronounced against them, but they would not hear. And Jeremiah wrote another scroll. Chapter 37. Okay, we're going to have to give you the, the short version of all of this. Chapter 37. Jeremiah comes and he warns Zedekiah. And he tells Zedekiah. Zedekiah sends to him. Now, now, he sends to Jeremiah people who don't like Jeremiah and says, ask Jeremiah to pray for us. And Jeremiah says, no, um, Tell you what, the Chaldeans will uh, do not, thus says the Lord, verse 9, don't deceive yourself saying the Chaldeans will surely go away from us. They will not go away. Look at verse 10. Even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and you won't, and there remained of them only wounded men, and believe me, that's going to be a lot more than just wounded men. If, but if you did, if the only thing that was left of this entire army of Babylon were the wounded they would come in and sack this city and burn it to the ground. God's using a little bit of sarcasm through the prophet to make a point. Why does God use sarcasm? Sarcasm is judgment, folks. Understand something. This is why you should never correct children with sarcasm. Sarcasm is condemnation. Sarcasm means judgment. And sarcasm is used by God through his prophets to correct people who will not listen to the truth. Well, Jeremiah, rest of that chapter, Jeremiah is put in prison. They've 
taken a house in Jerusalem and turned it into a prison. And Jeremiah is thrown in there. He's not just under house arrest. He is, they put him basically in a, in a constructed dungeon inside this house. Zedekiah gets nervous. Zedekiah is just a weak man. He knows the truth. He knows, what, he knows that Jeremiah is a true prophet. He knows that what Jeremiah is saying is the truth. But he's a weenie. He is more concerned, he is, a, he is more afraid of the officials in his court than he is of the Babylonians, let alone of God. And he's torn by fear. I mean, he just, he, he won't, he will not, he will not believe what he knows is the truth. And he sends for Jeremiah. It's kind of like King Herod Antipas sending for John the Baptist. He sends for Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, says, you have a word, he says to Jeremiah, you have a word for me? Yeah, I do. Everything that I've told you that's going to happen is going to happen. The only thing you can do, well, what, what am I supposed to do? Surrender. If you go out, you will, you'll be saved. Your life will be saved. Everything You'll be good. Please do not send me back to that place. Zedekiah sets, sets him up. Sets Jeremiah out. Okay, you're going to have a ration. Don't tell anybody what we're talking about. Jeremiah's enemies find him. And they take him. And they throw him into a dried up cistern. Now, a cistern is a storage tank for water. Cutting the limestone. This one, all the water is gone. It's all used up. But there's just mud at the bottom, and it's deep enough. They, they lower Jeremiah into it. They leave him there like Joseph was left by his brothers in the pit. And Jeremiah is just going to die there. He's going to starve, die of thirst. He's just, they're basically doing this, this to murder him without actually shedding his blood. Nobody who will ever find out. It'll just be too late, gentlemen. Jeremiah's gone missing. He didn't go missing. Ebed Melech, whose name means servant of the king, an Ethiopian who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into a cistern. He went, sent to the king, said, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet, casting him into the cistern. He will die there of hunger. There's no bread left in the city. So the king said to Ebed Melech, said, Take 30 men with you. Get them out of there. And the story, I remember being told this story in Sunday school. As, as a junior. And one of the things that the, the teachers were careful to say, how Edward Melick took, and not only did he lower a rope for Jeremiah, he sent down rags and things to put under his armpits as they raised him up as a cushion there. And just the, the deep, that detail showing the tenderness, the compassion of a man who's not even an Israelite, he's not even a Jew, but more compassion for Jeremiah than his own people. Who raised him up. And Jeremiah was kept in safekeeping there. For the remainder of the kingdom. For the remainder of the days of Jerusalem. Chapter 39. The last days of Judah. The last days of Zedekiah. Everything that Jeremiah said came true. If Zedekiah had trusted the word of the Lord the dependable word of the Lord enough to do what Jeremiah said, surrender to the king of Babylon now. 
don't make him attack the city. They attack the city, there will be no mercy. You will be taken to Babylon. Everybody else is going to die. That's exactly what would be happening. Zedekiah was taken. He had a face-to-face. They, he was taken up to Nebuchadnezzar, who was not at Jerusalem. He was at uh, a city up north of Damascus. That was, that was his command center, his command post for all of his, his campaign. They took him up there, hauled him up there. He, he had that face-to-face interview with Nebuchadnezzar, the man he really didn't want to see. Then Nebuchadnezzar commands that all of the officials who had encouraged Zedekiah, hang tough, hang tough, we can make it through this, we will not, Jerusalem will not fall. And every one of these men was slaughtered, probably in a very gory fashion before Zedekiah's eyes. And then his sons were all brought before him, and they were slaughtered, probably in a very gory fashion before the eyes of Zedekiah that was the last thing he saw because they then put out his eyes and took him in chains to Babylon where he was a captive the rest of his life (laughs) Jeremiah was given safekeeping by Nebuchadnezzar I can imagine this conversation taking place between Nebuchadnezzar and Zedekiah I keep hearing the name of this fellow Jeremiah. Who was this Jeremiah fellow? He was a prophet of the Lord. Well, what did this prophet of the Lord tell you to do? He told me that I should surrender to you. That it would have gone well with me if I had surrendered to you. And I can see Nebuchadnezzar leaning over and said, you should have listened to him. You've been listening to the seventh of ten episodes covering the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations. In our next episode, we'll find out what happened to Jeremiah after the fall of Jerusalem. I hope you'll tune in. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.